Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. There are times where we feel like we're recognizing people for their effort, but they might, and sometimes it's even our top performers, they might feel like they're not getting the recognition for their work that somebody else is. And that is a valid perspective. And we need to make sure we listen to that when that's the case. Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Hey, everybody. uh, Welcome to the show today. We have an unusual situation because I have invited a guest back. Uh, If you've been listening for a while, about a year ago, we talked to Michael Reddington, Uh, and he is uh, just a fascinating individual, the only certified forensic uh, interviewer I have personally ever known. I know you're probably not the only one out there, Michael, but the only one I've ever known. We talked about his book called The Disciplined Listening Method, How a Certified Forensic Interviewer Unlocks Hidden Value in Every Conversation, and uh, it was one of the most powerful episodes for me of all of 2022, and uh, just had to have Michael back on the show. So, uh, Michael, I'm so glad you're here. It's taken us a year between our both of our two schedules to to make it happen. But welcome back to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me back. I really appreciate it. And I'm happy to introduce you to plenty of other certified forensic interviewers if you'd like me to. There's plenty that I would vouch for personally. Happy to make the intro. Well, I don't know if I need to know anymore. I mean, I know you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. All right. Well, Michael, catch us up. What's been going on? What's exciting for you uh, since we talked to you last? I appreciate you asking. Really just building on the momentum from the book. It's, as you know, that, that that's a big lift, a lot that goes into it. And then once it's available for publish, it's like a whole new journey begins. So really just building on the momentum from the book, which I'm excited about. Uh, I, I'm assuming for you as well. It's nice to be spending more and more time out in the real world with real people, even if that means suffering through airline flights and such, but uh, really, yeah, just being on the road, getting back connected with clients and building off the momentum of the book. And it, it's been a fun ride so far. Nice to be out there again. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's we're, we're definitely out there more and we still have a, a whole commitment to our online, uh, what has grown into that online, live online training process. So it's definitely uh, balancing all that out. So uh, let's see here. When you're talking about uh, getting out there again and the work that goes into that, for people who aren't familiar uh, one of the things that if you're thinking about writing a book, uh, what Michael's getting at is, you know, you put all this work into writing the book and what, unless you really asked around, not everyone tells you this, you need to be prepared to put more time into marketing and selling the book after it's written than you do writing it. I don't know if that's been your experience, Michael. It has. It has. I remember going through the process and submitting the manuscript to the publisher for the first time and people saying, you know, congratulations, that's awesome. It's in. I'm like, yeah, but I don't even know that I'm 50% of the way to getting it done yet. I mean, there's now now they're going to shred it and we're going to figure out how. So there was that whole process. And then you're right. Once we had that done, then it was the launch. And then after the launch, it's like you start over. I mean, for me, 
I mean, maybe I'm somebody that needs to stop and smell the roses a little bit more from time to time, but it was almost like, okay, great. Now I've got this whole new plan of attack that I have to commit myself to. And you're right. It's it just, it's from one stage to the next, to the next. And it feels like each one is more labor intensive or commitment focused might be the right way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. It's good though. You know, and it's one of those things that, you know, having written several books, we're working on another one right now. Uh, and every time we get done and go through the whole process and, get it out there and do the marketing. And then we kind of look at each other and go, do we need to do that again? <laughs> and it's a little bit like, you know, I don't know, having a child or running a marathon or any of those things that take a lot of work and are good. And then you're like, oh, that was, I don't know if I need to do that again. And then enough time goes by and you're like, oh, absolutely. So can't wait to hear what comes, what's the, the expanded discipline listening method or volume two or, or whatever your next work might be. Uh, I appreciate that. And I think you hit the nail on the head with the time. Like enough time goes by. It's like our brain plays tricks on us. And what was, I say in air quotes, miserable now seems like a good idea. Uh, but there is a, a second half from the very beginning. This was at minimum a two book concept for me. So the first book, The Disciplined Listening Method, really is to oversummarize 90% strategic observation or 85% strategic observation, 10 or 15% influential communication and asking questions. So the next book, which is targeted for hopefully next year, we'll see how that works out, is really the inverse of that. So there obviously has to be some overlap from the strategic observation side with a few updates, of course, but that's going to be you know 10 to 20% strategic observation, and then 80 to 90% influential communication and really diving deep on elevating the quality of the questions that we ask. I'm sure you see this with a lot of the work you do as well. I'm out working with people who really feel in their bones that they're asking great questions. And I'm sitting there going, well, I'm not surprised at all that you're getting the answers that you're getting. You're walking them right into this. So, so I think really dedicating a lot of time to outline those alternatives. And as we did with this book, not just saying, don't say this, say that, but really get into the research and the application because mm -hmm. these conversations that I think there's a lot of overlap that you and I are helping people work their way through. They're so dynamic that to just tell people say this might help them 5% of the time. But if they can really understand what they're trying to achieve and who they're trying to achieve it with and the strategy and tactics behind it, now they can come, they can use their own experience, their own lexicon to create a great question in the moment. And that that's really the goal to get people to that level. Fantastic. Well, we'll look forward to uh, reading that one when it comes out. Maybe there'll Thank be you. a third, a repeat visit in another year or two. <laughs> That'd All be right. awesome. Well, so we need to catch up uh, some of our audience because uh, we have picked up uh, the, the show continues to grow one of the top uh, leadership podcasts in the world now, which is fantastic. And uh, certainly guests like yourself have helped that happen. Um, catch us up for those who are new and, and may not remember you from a year ago, or it's been a minute. Um, tell us what a certified forensic interviewer does. It is fascinating what, how you go in, the limitations you have and what you're able to do in that time period. Sure. So a certified forensic interviewer is a designation. So that would be like a certified public accountant or a project management professional or, or whatever. So it's not necessarily a job within itself. It's a designation of expertise within a field. And to my knowledge, it's still the highest expertise in the designation of expertise in the field of interview and interrogation. And the way that I like to summarize it is somebody who has the experience and meets the prerequisites and takes the exams and stays current with re-education like many other designations we should be able to be blindfolded and rolled off the back of a truck 
And wherever we stand up and take the blindfold off should be able to conduct a morally, legally, and ethically successful interview that focuses on obtaining the truth and really doing so by establishing rapport and helping people to protect their self-image, whether they're victims, witnesses, or suspects. So we have members from law enforcement, from federal government, from the auditing field, from the private sector, from human resources. You know, it's really all aspects of of interview and interrogation. For me personally, I was very fortunate to work with a team that not only were we out traveling the world teaching interview and interrogation techniques, but we were also called upon to conduct interviews and interrogations for investigations that had stalled or gotten complicated or had certain levels of sensitivity, I guess you could say, associated with them. So in those scenarios, my teammates and I were generally asked to go out to participate in investigations where you had multiple suspects, no evidence, everybody had already been interviewed and refused to acknowledge anything. Weeks or months tend to pass. And then for whatever reason, the situation becomes untenable and, and they call us in. So those were the, I guess, the context that I operated in most often. And some of the limitations that you operated in, I, I just found to be fascinating in terms of, um, you know, the, kind of the, the legal guidelines, you basically can have someone there no more than what is it 59 60 minutes like up to an hour kind of thing yeah the supreme court and again this may have changed although i don't think it has the supreme court as it typically does has a rather nebulous set of directions around non-custodial interviews and interrogations if somebody has actually been arrested and mirandized you heard somebody say you have the right to remain silent and you've been taken to a room there's a very specific set of guidelines for that but if you show up to work one day and somebody you've never seen before says, hey, come on in. I really need your help with something. Well, there's another set of guidelines for that. So in those non-custodial scenarios, we could not compel somebody to stay in the room. So quite literally, if you said to me, you know what, Mike, I don't want to talk to you anymore. And I said, well, actually, you have to. I just broke the law. <laughs> I'm getting sued. My company's getting sued. My client's getting sued. So literally, people were free to get up and go anytime they wanted and to your point, we operated under a general rule to stay safe that, especially in scenarios where we had no evidence, we had roughly 60 minutes to get somebody to say, assuming they did do something wrong, to get that truthful admission of yeah. guilt, participation, knowledge, whatever it was. Then after that, we had a reasonable amount of time to develop as many details as possible. So if I'm working a fraud case and somebody has been with the company for three weeks and they got off to a hot start... Well, then I can't be in there for a couple hours. Now, if I'm talking to somebody who's been with the company for 20 years and worked at multiple departments and they're a senior executive with access to all kinds of things and they're committing fraud, well, I still need to get that first admission inside an hour. But now, depending on how this conversation goes, maybe I'm here for an additional 90 minutes because of the totality of, of circumstances. But for us, Number one, being aware of that. And then number two, really be able, being able to outline that and document that is what helped keep ourselves and our clients safe. And the reason that I, uh, for our listeners, the reason I'm having you uh, talk about that background and, and what you do, I mean, A, it's just fascinating. And I'm always curious about these things. Uh, and it, uh, for, for, if you're interested, please go back and listen to Michael's episode uh, uh, in 2022, because we really walked through a lot of that process and everything not because you as a leader are necessarily needing to interrogate your, your team, but it's about the conversations. It's about influence. It's about um, how you're building those relationships. And 
you know, maybe you're having a performance management or a coaching conversation and how you're going about that. And so we get into all of that in that episode. So we don't want to unpack all of that again, but what we do want to do and what I, well, the reason I asked Michael to share that background is it's a, a massive amount of credibility uh, and experience and specifically what we're talking about today, which is, and you mentioned it earlier, building rapport and how as leaders, we can go about using some of the skills and the communication skills that you're going to teach us, but how we go about building rapport. Um, in today's day and age, one of the things we're hearing from leaders constantly, Michael, is um, now it's good that you're back out on the road, but a lot of people, particularly knowledge work, they still have these hybrid and, uh, and remote type teams or global yes. teams, and it's becoming tougher and tougher. Um, and with time being limited, and even if we are in person, with time constraints and everything else, building rapport, building relationships, building trust is a critical leadership practice. We've got to be able to do it and do it well. And I know you're going to be able to help us with that. So that's why I wanted you to establish some of that for us is you are, you have a, a cultivated talent and skill at that, that I think is just so valuable for all of us. Well, thank you. All right. So let's get into it. Building let's rapport. It. So You've got a short amount of time, which is part of the reason that I wanted to emphasize that aspect <laughs> of it. In your field, doing the work you do, you've got a short amount of time. Hopefully we have a little bit longer as leaders. So let's talk about how we begin building rapport with another human being. Um, ethically, as you mentioned. Yes. Yeah. Obviously, legally, we would definitely say that. <laughs> we're going to take that even deeper as ethically, morally, and like human-centered. So there it is. Let's, let's just start talking about that and then uh, go from there. So I guess I'll start kind of conceptually and move down. We'll get very specific as we go through, I promise. But conceptually, a couple of things. Number one, I truly believe when I look back, because I was asked this a while ago and like really stewed on it. And I truly, truly believe in my bones that the number one thing that allowed my former teammates and I to be so successful in conversations where we literally had people being like, yeah, good luck was because we embraced the totality of the human experience in a non-judgmental fashion. As human beings, we have so much in common. We have so many core experience, needs, desires, wants, fears, you name it, that just embracing that and approaching any situation, sometimes like, but for the grace of God, go I, if it wasn't for you know, a few things in my life or their life, could these roles potentially be different? But also understanding very clearly that for many of us, we don't know how we would act in any given situation or set of pressures until we get there. So, yeah, I've, I'm sure, well, yes, I can say for a fact in my career, I feel like I've interviewed some people who don't make the good people list. But the overwhelming majority of people I interviewed were good people. And they found themselves in a situation where they made regrettable decisions based on emotions or con contextual factors, situations that they weren't prepared for, didn't know how to handle. So embracing that going in really allowed us to have a non-judgmental conversation and see them as people. That partnered with being 100% comfortable with not needing to force control of the conversation. Mm. Is control equates to power and safety. So if I go into a conversation knowing that I tops got 59 minutes to get you to tell me something you've never told another human being, 
if I go in, like I'm taking control of this conversation from you, I'm literally taking power and safety away from you. So you are going to fight to defend that. And I'm creating extra mountains that I'm going to have to get over before I can ever get to the truth. So being patient, letting the conversation come to us, having a game plan in place that says it doesn't matter where you start the conversation. I'll take that to to get to where I need to go. And for me to finally get back to directly answer your question, there's a direct line to the leadership relationships and conversations you're talking about there. One of the things we mentioned in the last episode, time being the enemy of empathy, often pile onto that, that investigators, leaders, technical experts are often among the very worst listeners (laughs) because our expertise, education, and success makes us feel like we know the answers. Let's just cut to the chase. And it helps somebody else feel marginalized or not respected or not connected with. So really slowing down, Accepting the fact that we're all human beings in this situation and not needing to force control over somebody often is a great way to start the rapport building process. And to your point, from a leadership role, hopefully there's a series of conversations over a period of time. One of the things that we like to say is the main difference between trust and faith is tangible experience. People trust what they have experience with. They have faith in things they believe in strongly, but don't have that tangible experience with. So as a leader, if I want to build rapport and trust with somebody, that needs to be front of mind with consistently with my communications over time. So somebody feels like they've got that evidence and they can trust me. Yeah. So my hope is that all of us would want to, as anyone listening to the show, is that we'd have that goal to build that relationship, that rapport with um, with all of our people. And, you know, when we talk about this with our clients and we're doing uh, executive strategy sessions or training and development uh, workshop for, you know, middle or frontline leaders, one of the questions that comes up quite a bit is, you know, I've got a team of five people and three of them are pretty gregarious and yeah, and it's easy to build a relationship with them. And I feel like I know they're we always say pets, projects, and people, you know, who are their pets, projects, or their people in, in their life? And, and I get to know that pretty well. And then I've got this one person and she's just a closed book and I don't know how to build a relationship. Uh, doesn't want to share anything. And, you know, I don't want to interrogate or, or, you know, but what do I do? And, you know, it's a common experience. We hear that from leaders consistently when we're talking about building positive relationships, professional relationships. Um, you have any advice for us in in that regard? I do. Don't interrogate them. Don't push it. Um, it's for us, and this isn't a secret. We tend to gravitate to the people who are most like us, no shot there. And it tends to be easier to interact with people who are outgoing. You know, beware the charismatic extrovert, right? They might be your best friend or they might be manipulating the system because they make us so comfortable because they're easy to get along with. So when it comes to somebody who is introverted or quiet, or maybe culturally they come from a different place, so they have different expectations, or maybe they are going through a rough time at home right now, so they're a little bit withdrawn, there are ways to show them that we care, and there are ways to allow them to find when it's okay for them to talk to us. And one of the ways, I don't want to say is by not asking, because we don't want to seem like we're ignoring them, but in a sense, not asking. Because to use an interrogation analogy, um, many years ago when I was working for the interrogation company, 
the boss, Dave Zalowski, who I worked for at the time, who's like an uncle to me. He's a legend in that world. There's a technique named after him. <laughs> he was critiquing my interrogation videos. So that's like playing football and asking Bill Belichick, how did I do? Like, no matter how good you thought you did, you didn't. And in this particular case, yeah, the interview was successful for me. I got a documented confession in that typical situation I illustrated earlier, but it could have been much better. And in one particular instance, the woman I was interviewing had given a small admission and now I was working for more. Like what else is out there? Who else was involved? Where is it now? And I'm feeling pretty good. I know where this is going. Dave stops the video, looks at me and says, what are you doing here? And sarcastically, I want to be like, oh, getting a confession, hit the play button. <laughs> Wait for it. <laughs> he said, you sound needy. Mm. And the more needy you sound, the more power and control you give the other person. Because they can win. They can have power. They can have control by not sharing the information that you need. And that's one of those lessons that I carry into my business development, negotiation, leadership, performance management conversations, that if I come on too strong, if I sound too needy, people start, well, wait a minute, what's in it for him? Where is this going? What am I not seeing? Are there consequences? I don't know. And they can fall back into their own defensive system and make it more difficult. So again, to finally circle back to the question you asked, as a leader, based on the relationship in that situation, how can we find Subtle is probably not the best word, but I'm going to go with it for lack of a better one. Subtle ways to show that we care. What are some little things that we're doing? Do you just show up one day with their favorite coffee from Dunkin' Donuts because it's the nice thing to do and they've been especially quiet? Do you find somebody to help balance their workload a little bit? Do you give them a little, do you walk into their office at 11 a.m. on Friday and say, it's been a long week for all of us. I don't want to see you after lunch. <laughs> are there little things we can do to show that we care? The other thing is, and honestly, I do this with my son. And I do it. I learned it in the interrogation room. I do it with my young son and I do it with adults as well. If he appears to be going through a situation, I know that if I ask him, he's afraid of consequences or he's embarrassed. He doesn't want to disappoint mommy and daddy. So instead of just going for it, I'll say, hey, buddy, I don't remember being you. He's still pretty young. I don't, I don't really remember being your age. But growing up, I remember lots of situations where I felt uncomfortable. And I felt uncomfortable because, and I'll tell him a story and it's a true story. And when I'm done with the story, I don't say anything. Five, four, three, two, daddy, I felt uncomfortable today. And here it comes because I demonstrated my vulnerability. And especially from a rapport standpoint, I'm not trying to match it. So if he got in an argument playing kickball and I say, well, I remember the first time I got in an argument playing kickball. You only have to do that so many times before someone starts seeing through it. Like that's too specific. Maybe it's true, but you're trying too hard. So instead, I think about what's the core issue there. The core issue could be questioning self-confidence. The core issue could be questioning friendship. The core issue could be questioning direction that he got from somebody else or not getting recognized for something he think he did. Well, I've got about a billion of those stories from my life. So let me pick one and share it with him. And share it in a very sincere way. I'm not going to embellish anything. Just here's what happened. And then let him. And maybe he doesn't tell me right now, but maybe after dinner when we're coloring, 
is when he tells me. So I'm setting the framework. And you know, people might say, that's your five-year-old son. It's the exact same strategy that I learned in the interview room. And I use it with my business clients as well. Instead of me asking them direct, I'll share something and at least start to create the understanding allow them to come to the understanding that A, I'm not judging, B, I have similar experience and C, this is a safe conversation to have when they choose to have it. You know, there's so much that you just got into there that uh, one of the things that stands out, uh, Michael, is what what your mentor said to you, don't be needy and you're, or you sound needy and that's not putting yourself in a good situation. And how often as leaders, Again, not interrogation situations. We're just trying to build relationships with our team. But those leaders who are feeling that way with that one person, they're coming from their need as opposed to real true service to the other human being. And so starting with that, just reframing for ourselves. This isn't about me. It's about how I can be here in service to this person. And then another thing that that you said, and this goes back to what you're saying, like seeing the person, what's our common human experience and recognizing that is there's you just identified, like you just riffed them off, but, and it's worth going back and re-listening that like five or six different reasons. And I'm sure there's more why somebody might not be particularly forthcoming in a environment. You know, maybe they're new, maybe they're uncomfortable. Maybe they don't trust the situation yet. Maybe they have past bad experience. Maybe, as you said, cultural difference, maybe they're an introvert, maybe they're shy, maybe they're, you know, like who knows, right? None of that's about us. Amen. And I'm trying, I'm forgetting the woman's, Marguerite Imhoff. I thought I was going to forget it. Marguerite Imhoff, she's German, I believe, has done a lot of research specifically into the dynamics of communication. And one of her research studies that I found most fascinating is in superior subordinate communication and why superiors would think subordinates are good listeners or not and, and vice versa. And one of the things that she found, which mirrors I could also say substantiates everything we were ever taught coming up as investigators is that one of the single worst things we can do is make people feel judged. Mm -hmm. The number one fear that will stop most people from sharing sensitive information under vulnerable circumstances in the face of potential consequences is the fear of embarrassment. Embarrassment is a very real consequence. And it might not be anything we did to your point. It could be a previous boss. It could be a family situation. Or just dynamics. Yeah. 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 So what are we doing to understand to your point that this is about them? What, what is a general challenge, if you will, instead of focusing on what do I need to say or what do I need to do? Let's shift the focus to what do they need to experience? And if I can now create a level of adaptability where I'm not being insincere, I'm not being fake because people will see right through that. I'm adapting how I communicate. So I'm giving people what they need to experience so they will choose to feel comfortable sharing the information. I'll get it quicker. I'll get it in more detail. I'll get it more truthfully with less kind of hedging and, and being afraid of consequences. And I get back to that rushing for time. Do I have time for like a 30 second? Well, probably a, a 90 second story or do you want me to back up? Absolutely. No, go for it. So I was working with a group of executives just after Hurricane Ian came through Tampa. I was I was down in Tampa like two weeks after that. Long story short, I've got a table full of executives and then I've got a table full of managers. 
in, in a conference room and the CEO literally points at the other table to one of his managers and says, Mike, this is very interesting. So can you please tell me how when I went to his office and told him I needed something right away, he couldn't give it to me? I'm looking for an eject button. Like, can oh I just, my goodness. Can I get out of here now? <laughs> yeah, you're not trying to eject him. You're trying to eject yourself. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't want to be a part this of this. This is so uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see if I can just offend everybody. So I look over at the manager and <laughs> say, hey, man, please, I want you to step up. I want you to correct me where I need to be corrected. But do you mind if I take a step at how it might have felt in that situation? And he said, yeah. And so I stepped back so I could see him both. And I said, so imagine being in your office, a hurricane's coming. We're on the Gulf Coast. It's got to be stressful anyway. Then the CEO barges into your office like Kramer from Seinfeld and says, I need this and I need it right now. What is the first thought that went through your head? And as he sat back, I said, may I guess? And he said, yes. And I said, why? And he said, you're right. And once you think why, then you start thinking, wait a minute. What is he needed for? Where is this going? What are the consequences? What should I say? What shouldn't I say? What if I'm wrong? What if he needed something else? And that fear creates paralysis. That paralysis creates doubt. And now a question that could have been answered in five seconds is answered five hours later. He says, you're right. I say, thank you. I turned around to the CEO and I said, next time, try this. Walk into the door. Good morning. How's it going? He's going to go uh, crazy. And you say, yes, everybody knows there's a hurricane coming. It's changed past three times in the last two days, and it's going to change paths again. We have six facilities with people and secure data up and down the Gulf Coast. I've got about an hour to create a plan to make sure I get all of those people to safety and I keep all of that data safe. How quickly can you get me this? The CEO makes a face. I look back at the manager and I say, how quickly would you have answered that question? He's like, immediately. Because we, A, we slowed down. So that whole shock factor is out of the way. And then as trite as this is, and I'm sure you say it all the time, we, we illustrated the why before the what. So we took all of that question and doubt and fear out of it. So what feels like, well, I shouldn't have to ask a question that way. I should just be able to tell somebody. <laughs> If you ever think to yourself, I shouldn't have to do it, pat yourself on the back and congratulate yourself for being right, and then do it <laughs> because you just identify the right way to do it. So when we talk about building rapport and establishing trust to bring this all home, even in how we approach people, just by slowing it down, by thinking about what do they need to experience to get me the information I need to create the outcome I'm looking for, makes all the difference in the world. That was a masterclass in how to interact and, and have those kinds of conversations. Uh, listener, I hope you're paying attention. That was 90 seconds well spent. Just such a beautiful example of slowing down to go fast. Yeah. And, and recognizing how people's brains and emotions actually work in real life, not in our imagined scenario of what we ought to be able to expect or should it, like, you know, one, one of my favorite sayings is, I, you know, Am I, do I want to be right or do I want to be effective? Yeah. And, and I put right in quotes. Cause yeah, that person can say, yeah, well, should I have to ask that? Well, in their brain, it's right that I shouldn't have to, but oh, that and five cents will get you a stick of gum. Right. So <laughs> if I actually want to be effective, the technique that you just explained where we're connecting the why acknowledging their emotion, their circumstances and now, and then state and some vulnerability, here's what I've got to do. Can you help? 
and how much more powerful that is. And now you, they're invested in your success too. Completely agree. And for the record, because I don't want to sound at all disparaging of the CEO, before I even met him, I heard a story that when he heard a, a female employee, a woman in her family, husband, kids, pets were stranded in their house. He grabbed two of his VPs, hooked his boat up to the back of his pickup truck, got as close as he could, went in and got her with his boat. Oh, yeah. This is somebody who cares about his people. And that's why he was so motivated, because he cared so much. Action oriented. I think that's the kind of personality that sometimes gets in trouble in these circumstances. You're talking about a very uh, directive, action oriented individual. Like they see somebody's in trouble. Boom, they're on it. Right. And so. Uh, I got to have answers. Boom. I need my answer. Right. So that that's just how we approach things. If you have that personality, well, if you do, you can go faster <laughs> by taking that beat that you're talking without about. A, without yeah, a doubt. That's, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing. I'm really glad that we took that 90 seconds. So when we're talking about um, building rapport and uh, building the relationships, part of it is creating the safety um, not, it's not about us. It's about creating an environment for them that that's where we're putting our focus. And then you mentioned, uh, the vulnerability aspect, which is so critical. And in the example that you just gave, uh, the CEO being vulnerable with their need, here's what I'm responsible to do. And I've got an hour to do it. That's a hard, that's a heavy burden. And then I'm asking for your help. So there's some vulnerability there, even in that short thing, the vulnerability you're talking about with your son and, and how we can go about that. I think the key is, as I'm hearing you talk, that's not a, I give that vulnerability to instantly get a response, right? You're talking about, I'm creating an atmosphere. I'm creating a situation in which I'm displaying that it is okay to be this way and that I'm, I am entering the relationship on an even footing with you as a human being. That may take a day, weeks, months, depending on the person at least in my perspective, I'm curious your thoughts. I agree entirely. And one of the things that we try to get across, especially with senior leaders is their title alone. Take the person out of it. Just the title on their door, on their email signature, whatever it is, that title alone generally motivates people to be less timely, honest, and thorough with the information that they share because the person with that title has the ability to delegate consequences. And right. people need to protect themselves from consequences. It's it's core part of the human experience. So we are at, for many of us leaders at the beginning of any relationship, are at a trust deficit. And it's I think it's really, really hard. Not for, I, I can't say all for sure because I've met many that this hasn't been the case. But it feels like 51% or more of the leaders that I've met have a real difficult time accepting and acknowledging that. Mm -hmm. I care about these people. I hired them. They're on my team. I want to see them successful. I'm dedicated to them. I believe all of that. But if you think about it from the time we were teenagers and had our first jobs, unless we worked in a family business, we were treated like disposable assets, which quite honestly, I was a disposable asset in many of the early jobs that I had, a replaceable asset. So we begin to build these mental models of how leaders will treat us, punitive, parent-like, do this or else, you're in trouble, I need this, this is what you should be doing if you know what's best for you, blah, blah, blah. And so when we do progress to a point in our career where now we are in a career as opposed to a job, 
and we have people who we're working for who we can impact and they can they can impact us those mental models we've been building stay with us yeah so that's why we talk about and i steal the term from judy burgoon violating expectations <laughs> violate doesn't mean bad if i just go into any interaction and assume not that people expect the worst of me but pick a title as a leader as a professional interrogator as somebody who is here in the business development capacity like they probably don't have the highest expectations of me there's consequences there's stereotypes all of these things so how do i violate those expectations as early and consistently as possible in order to begin to cause them to elevate their expectations and change how we communicate over time. And the beauty of being in a leadership role is we generally do have days, weeks, months to do that. Yeah. And the consistency is what makes the difference. So I, again, I'm in complete agreement with it. You know, as you're saying that, and this goes back to something you said earlier is we started this aspect of the conversation by talking about the, the leaders who are like, what do I do with this quiet person? But your point was quiet or not, they have the same issues. Everybody is coming with those mental models, those frameworks that we have inherited from wherever that the person with the authority can impose consequences. And I've got to be careful about that. And so some people's way of dealing with that is gregarious. And I'm going to build a positive relationship and they go at it with their strength. And then other people who are more quiet and reserved go at it with their way, but they're both doing the same thing, trying to keep themselves safe in that situation. So it's incumbent on us as leaders to change the game. Amen. Someone's quiet. Let them be quiet. The worst thing we can do is try to force them out of that. Then we're just tripling down on their fears and stereotypes and we might lose them for good. And I really, really love the point that you just made, that somebody could be gregarious to protect themselves in a situation and somebody could be quiet to protect themselves in a situation. And that's where, call it situational awareness, call it emotional intelligence, call it human connection, call it leadership, whatever you want. Having the awareness in the moment to realize they're being quiet for a reason. They're being gregarious for a reason. And it's not their quietness or their gregariousness that I have to address. It's the reason driving it that I have to address. And when people ask me, and I'm sure you get asked similar questions, how should I approach X person in Y situation? And I feel like, and I don't blame them. They're looking for like the golden ticket. Just sure. say this and you'll get what you want. The first part of the answer I give typically annoys them before we get more specific. <laughs> if I need to achieve any goal with another individual through communication. I'm literally going to ask myself, what do I need to achieve? Who do I need to achieve it with? And what is the context of the situation I need to achieve it within? Once I have that, now I can get down to, okay, what do they need to experience? How do I create that experience? Is it in-person, email, lunch? Like, what are we, is it one conversation? Is it five? Am I the right person? Or should David have this conversation with them instead? Like, that's when we start really getting more granular with the strategy. Fantastic. So much value. Uh, I've got another uh, question for you, Michael. Before we do that, though, uh, where can we connect with you? Uh, folks who haven't already, they need to. Uh, let's connect with you. Anything that you want us to download, any resources, uh, find your book, any of the above. 
I appreciate you asking. Thank you very much. The book is called The Disciplined Listening Method, How a Certified Forensic Interviewer Unlocks Hidden Value in Every Conversation. That is readily available on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. And at this point, I'm assuming many similar retailers. Uh, as far as online, really the only social media I'm on at this point is LinkedIn. So the Michael Reddington CFI. Uh, websites would be inquasive.com for my company. MichaelReddington.com is where they can find all of my content, including our previous conversation. And then disciplinedlistening.com is where they can go to learn more about the book. All right. I'll get all those resources into the show notes for us. So uh, as we've been talking, the concept of building rapport, one of the places that that something I learned decades ago was the value of as we're listening to other people and having a conversation about anything, it uh, doesn't have to be a performance conversation. It can just be a one-on-one. It can be a casual hallway. It can be something really intense, any of the above. Is the value of acknowledging the emotion that we are hearing from the other person that we're picking up, checking in if we're accurate, um, as opposed to diving into all of the facts, circumstance, you know, all of the, the activity part, when I talk about this, I call it reflect to connect. So I'm reflecting the emotion that I'm hearing. You know, it Mm -hmm. sounds like you're really excited. Do do I have that right? Yeah. And I am guessing from our conversations that I'm like at a 101, like I'm in the intro class for connection, connecting in that, uh, that respect. So I'm curious your perspective on that and how we might advance our skills in connecting with other human beings in a genuine way um, in that respect. Thank you for asking. The genuine piece is really the key term there. But before I answer, I have a sneaking suspicion that you're far beyond the 101 level. So I'd I'd love to hear some of your thoughts as well as, as we go through it. Genuine, yes. The two biggest mistakes at a broad level that we see is people either ignore it or they try too hard to address it. They try too hard to identify it. And by ignoring it, someone feels ignored or by going after it too hard, we put somebody way on the defensive. What, so, is that, what does that look like going too yeah, hard? Um, if they go after it too hard, it, it could be something along the lines of, so tell me why you're so angry, or I can clearly see I just made you upset. Why don't you tell me why I made you upset? No. Okay, so now I'm four times more upset than I was five seconds ago. I got to say that is one of the like for me in, in human relationships. Tell me how I'm feeling. Almost nothing. This is David Dye speaking. Almost right. nothing fires me up worse than you telling me how I'm thinking. Like you don't know how I'm thinking or feeling. You're not. You can't see inside my head. And, uh, I'm with you. This is now David and Michael speaking. I'm with you a hundred percent. Like, I love it when I call, you know, whatever, there's been a problem with the credit card and I'm in some other city and I can't use it. And I'm on the phone and the woman says, oh, I'm sorry. I can, I understand what that feels like. Really? Really? You understand what it feels like at 3 a.m. in San Antonio on two hours of sleep and yesterday's clothes where I haven't had breakfast yet. And I'm trying to get home to my wife. You understand what that feels like. Well, that's statistically unlikely. Yeah, I can get <laughs> But I'm with you 100%. On so, so how can to, we do it better? Yeah, so to address that, and I'll actually start right there. Believe it or not, one of the phrases that we really work hard to try to coach out of people is I understand. Yes. Because if somebody doesn't want to believe you understand, it doesn't matter how many times you say it, the more you say it, the less they're going to believe it. So even just adapting the phrase from I understand to as I currently understand 
I believe I understand from my perspective, what I think I understand. So now I'm illustrating that I'm working towards an understanding without the general arrogance associated with, I understand. On the flip side, if somebody ever looks at us and says, you don't understand, please don't say, yes, I do. Because even if you do, they'll never believe it. So if somebody says you don't understand, I love to reply with, you're right, I don't. Or that's a good point. Or if you don't want to be as as firm as you're right, I don't, you know, maybe I don't. I might be missing something. By using one of those three phrases or a similar one that you may like, it tends to disarm the confrontation instantaneously. Again, we're violating expectations. It's the last thing that they expected us to say. And now we can come back with something like, please educate me. What am I missing? How could I understand? Now we can come back and ask that question. One of my favorite questions to ask is just please walk me through and then let them go from there. So those are a few. For me, my the closest phrase that I have to a silver bullet is the phrase, please correct me where I'm wrong. Mm, it assumes you're going to be wrong. You're not assuming you're right. Yes. Please if I say, please me correct where? me, if I'm wrong, I come across as arrogant, you've checked out. If I come across, if I say, please correct me where I'm wrong, now I'm humble. I'm, it's, I, I'm just throwing it out there. I'm probably wrong anyway. I'm putting you in control of the conversation. And if you wanted to take control, if you wanted to impose your will, depending on how bad this is, if you wanted to get assertive, I just gave you the opportunity to do it. So now I guarantee you're going to be listening closer to me than you were previously because I've asked you to do the one thing you want to do. So you've dropped your guard. You're listening more intently. And now you're motivated or to use a keyword empowered to be as honest and thorough with your response after that. So from a, from dealing with that, you don't understand type situation. Those would be my phrases or approaches. I don't know. I, I want to be very respectful of the listener's time. I don't know if you want me to go back a little bit previous to some more general approaches or if based on time that, that hits the nail for now. We've got just a couple more minutes and this has been a master class. I'm getting so much value. I know everybody's getting value. So let's do it. Well, I appreciate that. So I'll get back to don't ignore it. Don't try too hard. So if we're in a situation and we're trying to build rapport or, or draw information out of people, that please correct me where I'm wrong is a great one. Um, the We did before kind of sharing similar stories is a great one. But as far as telling people how they feel, that is a field of landmines. Please don't do it. So if I'm having a conversation with somebody who doesn't feel like their effort or work has been acknowledged or respected, someone else gets credit for their work. Instead of saying, you know what, David, I could understand if you were angry because Karen gets credit for all the work you do, like that, which may or may not be true. I don't know. But again, I'm telling you how you feel. That's a landmine. Instead, I can say, you know, one of the things from my perspective that I always have to be careful to be aware of is that there are times where we feel like we're recognizing people for their effort. But they might, and sometimes it's even our top performers, they might feel like they're not getting the recognition for their work that somebody else is. And that is a valid perspective. And we need to make sure we listen to that when that's the case. So now I'm not saying you feel this way. I'm saying I need to be aware that people may feel this way. And that's a valid perspective. 
So in doing so, I'm literally making it sound like I've heard it before. There's safety in numbers. You're not alone. You're not on an island. You're not vulnerable. And another one of my favorite phrases, that's a valid perspective. I'm now adding validity to it. So I'm opening doors in front of you and saying, which one would you like to walk through in order to try to set that up and keep the conversation going? Again, especially in a leadership role, I don't necessarily need you to tell me now. I need you to tell me before the problem gets much worse, but it doesn't have to be now. So if you go home and think about it and come back on Tuesday and tell me Tuesday, that's still a win. So do not tell people, I understand, do not tell them, hey, you're feeling this way. You're creating the opportunity for connection by addressing in parallel, yes. in, um, by comparison, it's other circumstances, by um, uh, what was the phrase, a, a tentative language that you had used about uh, in this circumstance, I or we or have seen or those kinds of things. All right. So many powerful ways to build that connection rapport. Uh, this has been an incredible, uh, I don't know, what are we at, 50 minutes or however long we are, but uh, Michael, thank you so much. This has been very, very valuable. Uh, I know that everything you've shared with us, for every leader listening, we've got multiple places to apply it. Uh, just at work, we've got with our teams, we've got with our peers and colleagues, and with our boss, with our managers, and all the way up to the CEO when they come to, to ask us, um, which I cannot wait for the next book. Let's just leave it there. Thank, Thank you. you so much for being a guest with us uh, today. Thank you for having me back. I really enjoyed it. And hopefully we have an, a, a reason for the third one, but it's always great to see you. Thank you for your time and for all the great work you're doing for so many people. Oh, I'm sure that we will. And uh, I know this has been value packed. So listeners, so many different applications here. See the person, emphasize your common humanity by being human first, showing up with that vulnerability. Um, not assuming control of the conversation and allowing people to come to you and recognizing you, you can take responsibility for the atmosphere you're creating, recognizing all the different power uh, differentials that come with your position, um, not showing up needy. There's just so many different applications. Uh, and then we, at the end, we were talking about connecting um, and uh, recognizing the emotion that somebody's experiencing, allowing room for that and, and creating room for connection. So many ways to take all this and be the leader you'd want your boss to be. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.